British Spy Stories, Season 2, The Kill Order. Episode 2 The sun occasionally breaks through the cloudy sky over London, casting long shadows across the MI6 headquarters at Vauxhall Cross on the south bank of the Thames. Sir Bernard McIntosh, the man in charge of all British security operations outside of the United Kingdom, sits in a large chair, wearing a blue shirt, pinstripe trousers and a waistcoat. He has worn the same uniform since his first day at work, which was over three decades ago. His mop of greying hair is cut short, and his long fingers grasp a fountain pen with green ink in it, as is the tradition for this job. Sir Bernard's assistant, Lawrence, walks into the room, followed by a middle-aged man who looks tired and slightly nervous. Agent Daventry, sir, says Lawrence, using Marcus Murphy's field name. Have a seat, Marcus, says Sir Bernard, indicating the two red leather chairs in front of his rosewood desk. Murphy sits and waits, while Sir Bernard finishes writing in the margin of a paper file in front of him. Just adding some thoughts to this Operation Brightside report, he says without looking up. Have you seen it? I have, sir. What did you think? I think it was under-resourced, Sir Bernard, says Murphy, as flatly as he thinks is reasonable. It was a massive cock-up, Marcus, says the older man, stopping and looking up at his visitor over his glasses. He considers then rejects the idea of continuing that particular conversation. I wanted to discuss Morrison, he says. A successful snatch-up, sir. Any injuries? No, Morrison is fit and well and holed up in a safe house in Copenhagen. And we keep him there until the Russians have calmed down over the snatch? Says Sir Bernard. Marcus nods. How long do we think that will be? Three weeks, maybe? Says Marcus. Sir Bernard takes a long, low breath out. What about the onward journey? Combs Branch has nearly finished constructing a new life for him. In the States. They're working with the CIA. He'll get a new name, new face, and a job at Harvard. Make sure we have the deal written down, says Sir Bernard. We're not giving them the chat with this knowledge of biological weaponry for nothing in return. The deal is fifty-fifty on his research findings for the next decade, Marcus. Or no deal. Yes, sir. Thank you, Marcus. Sir Bernard starts reading the documents in front of him. Marcus stands up and walks out. March is Ella Peretz's favourite month, and London in March is her favourite place to be. She pulls on her coat and wraps a scarf around her neck, then unlocks her front door and walks outside. The cold air hits her face, making her blue eyes water slightly. She turns left up the hill and heads for the common, even though she went there yesterday. She feels the need to get out, away from the things that keep digging at her mind. As she crosses the road and starts to walk on the grass, her phone vibrates in her pocket, and despite promising herself that she wouldn't look at it until this evening, she can't resist to see 
with Stefan, is messaging her. They met six weeks ago. Stefan had talked to her in a cafe, as she was trawling through work on her laptop. Every MI6 computer has a veneer application, as Tech Branch call it. With the swift pressing of a combination of keys, the screen displays pages connected to her cover job, which is a researcher in a media company. In reality, Ella is one of the heads of research in the MI6 investigations branch. Stefan had seemed open and honest from the outset, and they have met every week since that first day. Two weeks ago, they had slept together on a Saturday night in his flat in Southfields, twenty minutes from her place. She'd walked home the next day, past the Wimbledon tennis ground. The sun had been shining, and she felt happy for the first time in too long. Even though all new personal contacts are supposed to be reported the day after you make them, she had held off, just to make sure. She didn't want to appear to her colleagues to be picking up men all the time. But at last, on Friday, she had completed the 23J form, known colloquially within the security services as the 3P, its formal title being Permission to Progress, a Personal Relationship. She had left the form unsent in her drafts until Monday, and she will send it then. After that, another head of research will lead an investigation into Stefan's background and explore every detail of his life so far. His parents, his previous friends, his job, even where he has gone on holiday. But the message on her phone isn't from Stefan. It's an encrypt from work. She slides her finger across the stage one unlock pattern and waits for the code to be sent to her phone to get through stage two. The message is from MI5, Ops Control, MI6's sister service, focused on domestic UK intelligence. Requests from 5 come through all the time, particularly for European data, that her team has access to. Ella reads off the screen. The duty controller is tracking a police operation in Bristol, and the targets have been talking about European contacts that MI5 need to know about. She hits the button and makes the return call. Frank's Laundry, says the voice on the line. Ella had memorised today's passcode before leaving the house and says it into the mouthpiece. How are you, Ella? Who's that? she says. Agent Exeter, comes the reply. The field ops name for Major Marjorie Allardyce duty ops controller of MI5. Are you enjoying your Sunday off on Wimbledon Common? Yes, it's a beautiful day, says Ella. What do you need for this op? Background checks on two contacts that I'm hoping are in the MI6 system, says Marjorie. Got any names? Danilo Savchenko, Ukrainian national, and Stefan Lakatos, Moldovan. Ella's hand shakes as she holds the phone up to her ear. Suddenly her body feels tired. It can't be her, Stefan. But the surname is the same too. Can you say those again? Ella puts all her effort into stopping her voice trembling. 
Savchenko and Lakatos, says Exeter again. Ella's mind spins. She wants to end the call and run, but she knows she can't. She has two options. Declare her personal knowledge now of one of the men, or say nothing. I, she begins. Yes? I may know one of those men. Which one? The Kartos. In what capacity? Personal. Sexual? A pause. Yes. Did you think he could be part of a foreign intelligence service? Says Marjorie. In that second, a wave of consequences seems to roll out of the phone and hit Ella's mind. I didn't. Did you log the three-pee? I was just going to. There's a moment's silence from the other end of the line. Ella, says Marjorie. I'll tell you what. Let's meet for lunch tomorrow. We can talk it through. Can you get your team to dig out the details for the other guy? Of course, says Ella. There's another pause. Then she says, Will you report me? Let's chat first. I'll send you a location. Two o'clock, OK? Sure. The line goes dead. Catherine opens a window on her Mac to check her work queue that is fed by both London Control and by Europe Control, depending on which hub is leading on an operation. Two messages are sitting in her inbox. The first is from Agent Riverside, who has tried to keep in touch since their trip to France six months ago. She has ignored him until now and does so again as she deletes the message. The other message is a kill order. The target is the leader of a cell in Verona, who has been flagged as dangerous and a liability. Catherine has been allocated this job, as her patch is Switzerland and northern Italy. She reviews the field analysis provided within the job and recognises the street layout near the target location. There's a time-critical need to act swiftly for this particular case, and she decides to drive down immediately to carry out the order. The journey over the mountains in her Jaguar F-Type has taken a little under five hours. Catherine drives down the Via Goffredo Mameli in Verona, then cuts off north to the village of Arvesa in the suburbs. After passing blocks of flats on either side of the road that lay close to the curbside, the road starts to climb and the houses get scarcer. The slope rises to a summit, then drops down the other side into a village. The air is still, and the place is silent, as she steers the car past white houses with red-tiled roofs. She pulls over and checks the location of the target's house, which is on Via Plemuda, five minutes away. The main road that cuts the village in two is wide, with homes set under trees that would provide shade during the long hot summers of northern Italy, but are bare and skeletal now. The sky starts to show the first traces of dusk as Catherine turns off into Via Primuda. She drives the length of it, but it only leads to an alleyway with no exit for vehicles, making it unsuitable as an escape route. She drives back and around the block, then parks in a street that runs parallel to Via Primuda. 
She will need to cut through the garden of one of the houses here, and across the fields beyond, to end up at the rear of the target's home. The street is narrow, with the walls of houses not much wider than her jaguar in parts. But it's her only option. Parking further away will give her too far to run, to make her escape, after the event. She sits in the Jaguar, flips open her laptop, goes through security, and navigates to the job file. The target is Ricardo Fazzoli, a small-time crook who had caused havoc in his hometown of Verona as a teenager, by repeatedly attacking the police. He had been put into IPM, Instituto Penale Minorile, the Italian youth detention system. He had served 18 months and come out just before his 17th birthday. The police records abruptly stop after that and the researcher from Investigations Branch, who provided the documents she is looking at, has written a note saying, likely records wiped due to local police corruption. The next time that Fazzoli materialises is a newspaper article from five years ago. He was 24 years old by then, and the article is talking about how he was likely behind a number of smuggling gangs operating from Verona and up across the mountains, through Slovenia and Croatia, and into the Serbian capital, Belgrade. There is more intelligence in the file. That confirms he now has connections into the Serbian mafia. And one of his key associates is a central figure in Belgrade's crime scene. Florin Babu. Fazzoli is trusted, and this trust has increased his standing as he's been allowed to move up from drugs to arms smuggling. In the last year, he has started bringing in small weapons in containers from Moscow and funneling them out across the EU. Fazzoli has been watched by the AISE, Italy's MI6, for three years with growing concern as his power has increased and he has become more influential. Now the Italian and British governments have agreed that this one small cog in a network of people has the potential to be a threat to Western security, and he needs to be stopped, hence the kill order dropping into Catherine's inbox. She looks out at the sky, now almost black. There is no moon visible tonight. She checks her handgun, pushes it back into the underarm holster, zips up her jacket, and steps outside. There are lights on the road, but one street light is broken, providing a pool of shade that will mask her entrance into one of the gardens. She slips out of sight, over the back wall and into the rough ground that creates a no-man's land between the two streets. She runs fast guided only by the few lights from the houses ahead of her. Within two minutes she is at the back of the wall of the Via Premuda houses. She unfastens a standard HA6 climbing cord from her utility belt and throws it over the top of the wall. She pulls the cord and it latches on the other side. Catherine pulls the base lever and a set of footholds collapses out from the cord, providing a makeshift ladder which she starts to climb. She moves silently and rapidly towards the top, then jumps down into the back garden of the Fazzoli residence. 
These are old houses that have been gutted and gentrified at some time in the last decade. She walks to the back door of the house, listens for activity, and hears none. She produces a set of short metal tools and inserts them into the lock. Two swift turns and she hears a click inside the mechanism. She unholsters her Beretta M9 handgun and raises it to her shoulder height, then turns the door handle. Inside the first room is the kitchen. Two side lights are on, but there is no one in sight. She steps across the floor tiling, black and white against her black leggings and boots. She can hear her breaths, steady, measured, impatient. Catherine pushes her head around the doorframe into the next room, which is the lounge. Again, no one is there, and she steps lightly through into the space. A fire is alight at the far end of the room, and she can feel the heat from twenty feet away. She waits, taking in the layout of the room. There are stairs on one side, sofas and two chairs, and no evidence of inhabitants. But they must be somewhere. Catherine takes a breath out, moves one long leg towards the base of the stairwell. She hears a slight click behind her. Stops. Starts to turn. Then feels pain on the left side of her head. And her world goes dark. <laughs>